I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stone. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? Yeah, I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. What's better than one primetime defensive arm wrestle when it comes to football? That's right, dueling primetime defensive arm wrestles. That's what we got last night in the Monday Night Football doubleheader. You're all welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. I'm Sam Monson, joined by Trevor Sikima on this wonderful Tuesday. How's it going, Trev? You know, you saying that it's a defensive arm wrestle Mm -hmm. is a really great way to put it that is a glass half full view of it and i'm really proud of you sam i really am making a glass half full observation of the absolute slop of the game of football that we saw last night on not just one but two occasions you know well done for you you're you're kicking this podcast off well my friend thank you i appreciate that um i'm so i'm curious what was your what was your setup for this uh, this Monday Night Football doubleheader? Were you split screen on the YouTube TV? Were you multiple screens? How did you deal with it? So I had Panther Saints on the big TV because I was writing the little recap for that one. So I wanted to pay attention. That was, and obviously, like, NFC South, Tampa Bay trade, go figure. But then when the Brown-Steelers game came on, I had my laptop out. So I was kind of following along on the laptop. Plus, I have YouTube TV. Mm. So you can get the multiple screens going on there. So I paid more attention to saints panthers because i cared more about that game and bryce young and all that but yeah i don't love the monday night doubleheader where they kick off one hour after another like if you're good if you're gonna do it to me do it the way the schedule used to be where one game kicks off at seven and then you've got like the chargers versus somebody else who's kicking off at 9 30 10 o'clock whatever and we just go into the late night that's how i would want it but i don't know maybe maybe the viewership says differently yeah i so the the split screen thing i found challenging i don't love it as a concept right like number one it works really well for four games because it takes up the entire screen. Two games, it's like it's the, the aspect ratio is wrong, right? You can't. Yes, jam I agree completely. Two games yes. next to each other, it leaves like half the screen untouched, and you're like, this is this is not a great viewing experience in either game. <laughs> yeah, then, if you're gonna if you're gonna do split screen, if you're gonna do two games, you've got to stack one on top yeah. of the other, and then like have like a thicker bar in the middle just to separate it and then like that's how it's the full screen and that's how you're viewing the two games and then the other thing i think i find not having commentary on both games slightly off-putting i actually think you're better off having two separate screens or tvs and having the sound so you i end up in this weird world and this might just be my brain operating in a weird way that other people's don't but I find that there's a a zone where you can have the volume for either screen at about the same level where your brain can pick up like whichever one's the most lit. Yes. Heightened (laughs) levels of excitement from the commentary and then like focus on that screen. Because the problem with the split screen thing is you only hear the commentary for one side, which means you're basically not even paying attention to the other screen. Right. You have to like dedicate mental resources 
to focusing in on the screen where no no audio is coming from it. Whereas if you got two different TVs, two different screens, and the audio is in that like muddy zone where it's both at about the same level, your mind somehow automatically picks up whichever one something interesting is happening in and focusing on that one. I just don't know how we have technology great enough to AI <laughs> Iowa's coach about crawling out of his ass for asking for points. And mm-hmm. we can't figure out how to split screen two Monday night football games on YouTube TV. It's rough. I, there's a disconnect here. Yeah. We need to, we need to, we have the technology to do incredible things. And yet we're sitting here with a terrible aspect ratio of two Monday night football games going on at the same time. I mean, we are, yeah, we <laughs> don't get me started on the things that modern technology should have solved, but hasn't like we we're still not in a world where you can just watch whatever damn football game you want in a given weekend. It shouldn't be that complicated. We should be able to put this stuff on the screen and in fact, multiple games on the screen of our choosing. And yet we're not there yet. We're getting there. I've got faith in humanity. And by faith in humanity, I mean faith in robots. That's right. Faith in robots. Um, All right, we'll get into those games in just a second. But first, fall is all about back to school and back to routine checklist. The most important task on that list should be securing your your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Trevor, let's start off in your, uh, your famed NFC South. Um, what were your big takeaways from this Carolina-New Orleans game? I mean, it's, it's – if you want to know what my big takeaway was, it was that I think Panthers fans are so ready to be relevant that they uh, – I'm not saying all of them. I don't mean to, like, totally generalize. But I think a lot of them were not ready to accept where the Panthers currently are. Like, they're not ready to compete. Nothing about that roster, unless Bryce Young was about to just become an absolute savior from play one. That roster is not where it needs to be. And it's kind of sometimes hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. Like, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, so I hear a lot of talk about the Panthers and what they're doing. And there's a lot of players to get excited about. You know, Brian Burns, Frankie Louvu, Jeremy Chin, like Shaq Thompson, Derek Brown, You know, obviously Bryce on the offensive side of things. DJ Moore before he got traded. But there, there's a lot of players that you could point to that get you excited. Carolina is not a full team yet. Certainly not on the defensive, or sorry, on the offensive side of things. It's nowhere near where it needs to be for Bryce Young right now. And Bryce Young is certainly not perfect. You can definitely tell that he's a little bit hesitant right now. You know, whether it's his size related or not, like, he seems a little bit hesitated. He realizes that he's not uh, on an Alabama team that's absolutely stacked. 
there's no receivers in there that can help him outside of Adam Thielen, who if Adam Thielen was what he used to be, I feel like the Vikings would not have gotten rid of them because then they immediately needed a good wide receiver too when they did. So that tells you where Adam Thielen currently is in his career. And he's basically the only guy that they could possibly lean on. The offensive line's still not what, what it needs to be. It's some young guys that are figuring it out. They're still getting chemistry together. And the game kind of looked like it should. If you take a realistic look at where the Panthers are. Now, that's not to say it can't look better. I think that it can. But some people were were getting way ahead of themselves when they're like, hey, why not the Panthers in the NFC South? Right. Okay, sure. It's not exactly the most established division. But the why not is right in front of you on the depth chart. You were trying to believe a lot of the best of, and maybe that manifests itself in the second half of the season. They become a more competitive football team. I'd love to see it. But it just felt as though when people were watching that game last night, and I felt this from the Twitter timeline as well. Maybe it's just because I follow a lot of Panthers people from living here. But it felt like people were really disappointed to the point where there was almost like a feeling of regret. And I don't think that you need to be there yet. I really don't. I think the Panthers are going in the right direction, but it doesn't matter how long you've been rebuilding as a team. If your roster still says that you're rebuilding, guess what? You're rebuilding. It's not this formula where, all right, we rebuild for three years and then we paid our dues and then in year four, we're going to be really good. If the roster's not good by year four, you're not going to be good. And I think that's where the Panthers are right now. And I think they kind of need to, that's got to be the expectation of it. A lot of people are just so down after what Bryce has done over the last two weeks. It's like, man, come on. It's two games into the guy's career. The team and the offense are not good around him. Give him a little bit of time to figure it out. So, honestly, that was my big takeaway from last night. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, look, Bryce Young doesn't look good, but it's also quite clear that he doesn't have much help around him. And it's like a walking case study of this difficulty of how do you get the next quarterback without selling the things you need for the next quarterback to be successful along the way. Like the Carolina-Chicago trade – is this fascinating dynamic where Chicago were willing to take the receiver to stay with Justin Fields, and then Carolina was willing to give up the receiver in order to go get Bryce Young, but Bryce Young now needs that receiver. Like, Bryce Young is suffering for the absence of DJ Moore, which was required to get him in the first place. So there's this very difficult catch-22 situation that teams are dealing with where in order to be bad enough to get that number one pick to get the QB – You probably don't have the situation around that guy in order for him to have any kind of success right away. And now, look, maybe that's just what you have to suffer through in order to have long-term success, right? Like 2023 is going to stink for Bryce Young because he doesn't have help. But as long as you don't break Bryce Young along the way, and I'm not just talking physically, um, you know, as long as you don't damage him with this year of struggling – Next year is when you can go find him a number one receiver and help his offensive line improve. And the young guys on that line just getting better will will probably improve as well. And then year two is where you start to reap the benefits of having secured the Bryce Young thing in the first place. But it does mean that that first year is probably going to be a grind. And I think, you know, it's only two games, but we're probably seeing that from Bryce Young right now. Yeah, you don't draft Bryce Young number one overall 
like to go two and zero. Like you, you draft him to hopefully be your franchise quarterback for multiple contracts. You know, certainly going into a second contract. And so, even though of course you would love for him to hit the ground running as fast as he possibly can, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily already this bust. Even if we're seeing real struggles for him, I'm not trying to make every excuse in the world for Bryce Young. I know we liked him a lot here at PFF. I know a lot of other outlets clearly did as well, but. With with Young, I think that you made a great point, and that's what the most important part is about this year. Young's best attribute was never physical ability. It was always mental. And right now, that's a detractor of the success for his game. We saw it last night. He wasn't dealing with pressure super well. The NFL game is clearly a lot faster than he's used to because he got caught from behind in situations where guys were coming up from behind and he was mm-hmm. uh it was rolling out. You know, there was that um there was the play where I think Carl Granderson came up behind him and strip sacked him yeah. even when he had two hands on the ball. And it's like, okay, now, now you are you are understanding NFL speed and strength here. There were a couple of opportunities where he took a sack instead of throwing it out of bounds because all of a sudden the defender was in his face quicker than he believed they were going to be. And so those are things that absolutely are going to take time. The best attribute of him was always how he processed the game. And he's now going through the growing pains of understanding how fast this league is. He did so certainly in week one when Jesse Bates picked him off twice over the middle. And he did last night when it came to getting hit and taking sacks in the backfield. So it's going to be a journey with Bryce Young. And I agree with you, like help and better receivers, better offensive line, like that all goes into it. But truly the most important thing is is genuinely just time. Because I would tell you that even with better wide receivers, a lot of the struggles that we saw last night from Bryce Young would probably still exist. Now there are plays that other guys would get open. Maybe the ball comes out of his hands a little bit quicker. But adjusting to how fast these defensive linemen are getting after him, yeah, he would still be going through that even if he had better receivers. So this is all part of the journey of drafting a player like Bryce Young, and I think that they just need to realize that and be patient with it. It just it makes the adjustment more difficult. Like the fact that he doesn't have any receivers that are clearly getting open. I mean, we talk all the time, particularly Alabama. Like the difference between Alabama open and NFL open is just – it's like rewiring your brain. It's a different picture that you have to deal with. But – it must be exponentially harder to coach a quarterback about what that difference is when you don't even have NFL open. <laughs> like now you've just got right. now you've just got right. guys that are covered, right? So now yeah. you're like, look, theoretically, this guy should at least be, you know, have the right leverage, and that's open in the NFL. As it turns out, it's not even open in the NFL, but I'm going to need you to put the ball in the air anyway because otherwise you're going to get killed by the 265-pound defensive lineman that's bearing down upon you. The second half of this season is where you can, in my opinion, really start to fairly evaluate Bryce. Because, and yeah, this first year is probably going to be difficult, but to me, it has to look better the second half of the season. If it doesn't look better second half of the season when it comes to feeling NFL edge rushers, knowing when and where he can throw the ball, know the difference between NFL Open and and Alabama Open. If it doesn't look better the second half of the season, then you start to worry a little. Then you start to worry a little bit. Then I think that that criticism is warranted. Basically, the the whole first half of this season for him, I I don't really care. 
I, I, I really don't care just because it's 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 a massive transition for him going from what he had at Alabama to now what he's got at Carolina. I uh, I might need to update my reference. I've used this forever, but there's I call it Christian Ponder syndrome, right? Which is a quarterback who was athletic enough to run away from defensive linemen in college and never understands that they're not athletic enough to do that in the NFL. And yeah. Bryce Young had several plays last night where Christian Ponder syndrome was in full effect, where he just hadn't computed the fact that you can't do that in the NFL unless you're a super athlete. And he isn't. Like, you know, whatever about Bryce Young's strengths, he's not that level of super athlete. He's still a solid athlete. And we saw, you know, it was a nice scramble up the middle for good yardage and stuff. Like, he can still move around. But... You can't run away from guys like Carl Granderson in, uh, at the NFL level. You just you can't get away with it. And yep. I don't know if I if I need to update my guy. Like, do I need a new? I need a ne- I need the next Christian Ponder because we're probably running out of people that remember who the hell that is. <laughs> no, then it's a throwback. Then you become vintage. <laughs> vintage. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a vintage reference. That's okay. always I, I always try to use the word vintage because it's a lot more friendly than uh, you know just saying dated. Right. Yeah, vintage. I don't know who that example is, though. We got to put some brain power to it. Yeah, vintage is definitely better than just boomer. Outdated. <laughs> yes. Um, I came away pretty impressed by Carl Granderson, by the way, in this game. Like he's oh, holy I think cow, he's the best yes. defensive lineman that the Saints have now. Dude, that whole Saints defense is great, and honestly, like it's it, it's a major reason why I picked the Saints to win that division is because of that defense. You know, I looked at things in Atlanta and I was like, all right, you know, I think that Atlanta could take the next step in a lot of different ways. They got some good offensive weapons, love the offensive line. If, if Ritter's more consistent, they're going to be great. I think they made upgrades to the defense, but how much better is it going to be? You flip the you flip the page and you go over to the New Orleans Saints chapter of the preview magazine, if you will. And New Orleans, you look at their defense, you go, damn. All right, a little bit long in the tooth with some of these veterans, but it's not like they're trash. They're just veterans. You know, I think that people people get carried away with if a defense is getting up there in age, they just assume everybody's falling off a cliff. Veterans ain't falling off a cliff in, in New Orleans. They're still they're, they're just simply veterans and they're playing really well. Now, will that cliff come over the next year or two? Yeah, maybe, but right now they're a really good unit with a ton of experience. They're really aggressive, a lot of continuity from the coaching staff, and they're playing really, really well. You got a guy like Grandison who, yeah, now has all the opportunity with some of the defensive changes that have been made there, and he's absolutely making the most of it, man. And They needed him, right? They really needed him to step up, given the guys that were kind of in and out through free agency last year, and knowing that, all right, they're going to play Brian Brzee a decent amount, but with everything he went through at Clemson, just didn't have a lot of game experience over the last couple of years. So you know that he would be a little bit of a work in progress. They definitely needed him uh, to step up, and and he absolutely has. So the tenacity of that New Orleans defense and the experience of that New Orleans defense is a reason why I was pretty bullish on them to win the South. Yeah, I mean, Tampa Bay is obviously impressing in the first couple of weeks relative to expectations, but the Saints should still be you know, the favorite for that division. And I think we're kind of seeing why in that Derek Carr has not necessarily played particularly well through the first couple of weeks, but that receiving core is insane. Like right. that the Michael Thomas might not be what he once was, but he's still pretty useful. And when you combine him with Chris Alave and Rashid Shahid and, you know, everybody else there, Carr doesn't have to be special. Like he just needs to get those guys the ball and get it in the vague general direction and they're cooking. Carr 
the way that I looked at this is as long as Carr's not Jameis Winston when it comes to turnovers, he's going to hit enough big plays with all those receivers to where I think the defense is going to hold up their end of the bargain more often than they're not, especially when they get Alvin Kamara back. I, I think that this offense automatically, it, once that happens, becomes, okay, I've got my security blanket guys and Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara out of the backfield or in the short areas, and they're clearly using Michael Thomas in all sorts of different areas as well. You have the explosive receiver in uh, in Chris Olave who could basically do it for you anywhere you need him to. And then Rashid Shahid is just a massive big play waiting to happen. And that's what happened in week one to put it away, and that's what happened in week two. The second half of both of these games, Derek Carr has gone to Rashid Shahid and say, I'm going to you to end the game. Like, like we're, right. we're going to make this happen. And he hits a big chunk play, and that makes all the difference in the world. To me, Carr's not going to be perfect. He's never been a perfect quarterback throughout his entire career. He just really has not been able to put it together. And if you think that that's going to happen... Sure, I guess it's realistic, but it's a, it's it's a steep bet at this point because he is just kind of a roller coaster of a quarterback. But he gives you those high enough highs, in my opinion, to where two, three, four throws a game can make all the difference in the world because they have that defense along with them. That's what we talked about so much when he was with the Raiders, right? They would be able to score so many points, but the defense was never at any point in his career better than top 20. Now he's got a defense that I think is well above top 15 in the NFL, and I think that that's going to make the difference for him in the win-loss column. What is your take on Taysom Hill? Because I kind of love him. I, I love Taysom Hill. I don't care what it says about me. I, I love watching Taysom Hill play football. I, I think it's hilarious. I, th- I think it's I think it's a hilarious troll job that actually works, right? <laughs> I mean, like if Taysom Hill was was in Arthur Smith's offense, he'd probably have five touchdowns a game, right? They'd probably tell Bijan Robinson to sit on the sideline for every single goal line carry, and they right. just give it to Taysom Hill. He's one of those backs that, of course, like what Sean Payton kind of tried to do with him, with him being this pseudo quarterback. That was that was obviously like. I feel like this getting a little too far, but like for what Taysom Hill is, this true utility player on offense, I feel like a lot of the hate for Taysom Hill comes from one, the number of his contract that right. they signed him to when Peyton was still there and people freaked out about that. But two, I think it's fantasy football, man. I think fantasy football people drive the hate for Taysom Hill because if you took away fantasy football, you would just go, yeah, every single team in the NFL would want Taysom Hill. Like, he could play fullback for you. He could play running back for you. He could play tight end for you. And obviously, he can give you a couple. Like, if you if you ran a flea flicker or, an, or a running back pass or whatever, you'd probably want that guy to do it more than a regular running back. So he does feel like one of those players that gets – way too much regular hate because of fantasy football. And in reality, I think all 32 NFL teams would probably want a guy like that on their team. I think it's also because of this starting point of whenever quarterback is in the discussion, people get irrationally charged and hate-filled because particularly if it's like, you know, can a guy play quarterback or not? And then if he can, it's like, well, this guy just stinks. Like, he's just a bad player. Whereas if you just eliminated the quarterback part of the Taysom right. Hill discussion right. and said, what is this guy and is he good at what he does? You'd be like, this dude is amazing. Like, we're talking about Cordero Patterson, where sure, it might not fit into a conventional box, but he's really good. And in particular, I think I said this last year, 
Like, Taysom, we keep, is he a quarterback? Is he a tight end? Like, where does he line up? Taysom Hill might just be a really good power running back. Like, just if you just called him a power back and lined him up right. a tailback, why, like, why isn't that just what he is? Why do we keep giving him, like, direct snaps as a quarterback or pretend he's a tight end? Like, why is he not just put on the running back depth chart and he is our power back in this offense? He is an annoying player that you have to game plan for, <laughs> yeah. right? Because they they will use Taysom Hill in really important situations, right? Goal line stuff, third and short, fourth and short, whatever it is. And he's just this wrinkle in there that's so annoying because he could do so many different things to convert for you on money downs. And that's why I say all 32 teams in the NFL would want a player like that. It, it, it's 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 a... And I, I again, I just go back to I think it's just fantasy football driven hate and the quarterback stuff. Obviously, when they kind of tried to trot him out there and actually play quarterback, it was right. horrendous. And I think people just remember that part of it. But in reality, he he is an offensive chess piece. He really is. He really is. But I also think like I, I think we, they've kind of overcomplicated it. Like if you just labeled him as a running back who occasionally is going to throw a pass or you know right. do other things. Right. That's as, that's as complicated as we need to get. Like, you know, LaDainian Tomlinson attempted passes. Nobody tried to call him a quarterback. Like, Walter Payton has a bunch of touchdown passes in his NFL career. He's still like Christian McCaffrey does too, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, like, exactly. So, that's it. Like, if he was just Christian McCaffrey, if we just called him a running back who's going to line up out wide sometimes or occasionally toss a pass, like, that's all we're talking about here. Stop, like, forget the quarterback stuff and stop labeling him as a tight end. He's not a tight end. He's a running back, and he's a pretty good one. I, like, I think that's as complicated as it needs to get. Um, all right, let's pivot to this other game, which mm-hmm. was insane from almost start to finish. The very first play from scrimmage, right, was a pick six that like bounced off the hand of the receivers, then bounced off another defender, and then ends up in, in the arms of Ali Highsmith, who returns it for a, a touchdown. And it didn't get much less crazy from that point on. You probably saw a little bit more of this one in live than I did because, like I said, I was watching the, the the Saints-Panthers one. But even from me following this game, it's wild. It would, like, people were ready to put Kenny Pickett in the USFL. <laughs> like, I, I've, people, people were ready for this guy to never be in the NFL again. And it is kind of hilarious that he ended up getting the win. I, I understand that uh, QB wins aren't a real thing, but... When I look at this game and the results, the thing that does stand out to me is is Cleveland's side of it. This is one of the best defenses in the NFL. Yeah, They gave their team a shot now to win over the last two games, right? They certainly did so against the Bengals when they won last week, and they did so again against the Steelers. I mean, they were absolutely locked down. They made some of their good players on offense look, again, like they didn't belong in the league. When you look at how Cleveland rushed the ball, Jerome Ford, he had a healthy yards per carry average. A lot of that came from that one big run. Nick Chubb obviously had a, had a really good average before he ended up getting hurt. Brute. They were able to move the ball on the ground. They were able to diversify where they threw the football. The thing was that just like Deshaun Watson's not it, man. And I, I we've, I think you and I have talked about this before. I don't know if that Houston version of Deshaun Watson Watson exists anymore. And every week that it does not show up, it gets harder and harder to think that it's ever going to. Kevin Stefanski also is in a 
kind of interesting spot right now because it was probably a big part of the reason why they bring in Watson and they think that it's all going to work out. And here it's absolutely falling flat on their face. This is a football game that you absolutely should have won last night. I don't care if you're on the road. I don't care if it's a divisional game. I get the winning in the NFL is really hard. The Cleveland Browns should have won the game last night. Yeah. And they didn't because of Deshaun Watson. And now it's becoming a Kevin Stefanski problem who, if you go to their records, 2020, Stefanski went 11-5. and Did you won coach of the year that year, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, I think so. I, mean, yeah. I believe you won coach of the year that year. Then they go eight and nine. Then they go seven and ten yep. with with the first year of Watson. And now they're sitting here at one and one, and the quarterback position still feels like an unanswered question. Yeah, um, Steve. This is not me, good for Stavansky. No, Steve sent me it's some, not good. some numbers on Deshaun Watson. So Deshaun Watson with the Browns, PFF grade of fifty seven point five. That's thirty fifth out of forty quarterbacks. Uh, PFF passing grade fifty four point nine. So like three grading points worse. That's thirty sixth out of forty. Big time throw rate, 2.1%. That's 32nd. Turnover worthy play rate, 3.6%. That's the 11th highest mark. And then a sack percentage of 9.7%. That's the third highest in the NFL. That's pretty bad. And it's not getting dramatically better. Now, okay, if you want to put the optimistic spin on this game, as we did to to start the show, both of these defenses, I thought, were, were very, very good. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Steelers defense played a lot better than it did week one, um, and it was causing a lot of problems as well. And this was a pretty difficult environment for the quarterbacks to look good in, but it wasn't a good game by Deshaun Watson. It was an abysmal game by Kenny Pickett. And, you know, after two weeks, okay, they got the win here, but, dude, that Kenny Pickett and that offense looks more like it did last year than it did during the preseason or training camp. And Pickett was good towards the second half of last season. Yeah. Right? Was it, it he it was basically Pickett, Lawrence, and Burrow, whose second half of the season were like on fire. Like those three had some of the highest passing grades, if not the three highest passing grades that we had in the league over that stretch of time. And so it really looked that it really looked like Kenny struggled early when he first became the starter, but then it was really starting to slow down for him, and he was really starting to see the game appropriately during the second half of the season. He looks great in the preseason, and regular season comes around. I get that it's a different animal, but Pickett's decision-making and accuracy are all over the place right now. Yeah. And I just I didn't think there was going to be this big of a regression. We talk about the sophomore slump all the time, like, oh, you know, it's, it's something that you can plan for with some of these players, but, man... This kind of seems like a dub because it's the most important part of playing the position. But for Kenny Pickett, especially a player who isn't winning on overwhelming athleticism or arm talent, if your decision-making and anticipation isn't pinpoint and your accuracy is not pinpoint, it's going to look like it has over the last two weeks. And that's obviously a major problem because for as much of a wizard as Mike Tomlin is, this team's not going to finish above 500 and compete for a playoff spot if Pickett can't if Pickett can't look at these last two games and say these are the worst two games of my season. And yeah. like that's that's kind of the level that we're talking about here. Those two games that we've seen from Kenny Pickett have to be the worst two games that he plays this year if this team's actually going to compete for a playoff spot. And it's entirely possible that that will happen. You know, that's the the nature of small sample sizes, but he was I mean the decisions in this game were catastrophic. Like the interception to Delpit was ridiculous. It's 
sometimes, you know, there are nature, like some of the young interceptions that guys like Bryce Young or, or whatever have made in the first couple of weeks of the season. It's about, you know, learning what NFL players can do relative to college players or, you know, learning the speed of the game and all these kinds of things. Then there are decisions where it's like, this wasn't disguised. This wasn't anything complicated. You just completely misread what you were looking at. Like, there's a guy sitting there right where you want to throw the slant into, and yeah. all you need to do is to check that he doesn't move in the direction of your slant before you throw the ball. Like, you're looking at it anyway. You just need to make sure that guy isn't already bearing down on it by the time you throw that ball, and instead he throws the ball right to, to Grant Delpit. And then the second turnover-worthy play, which was lucky not to end up in a turnover, I don't even know why he's attempting that pass. Like, he's running out towards the sideline and instead tries to throw it like around a, a defender like his receiver has to go all the way around the back of him and come back towards the center of the field in order to make that anything other than a catastrophic mistake in a game that was close like again sometimes you can understand forcing it like that if you're you know in a hole you've got a couple of touchdowns to try and pull back and you need to make something happen that isn't necessarily there but this was your I think they were up at this point in the game. Like, don't make that mistake. That's ridiculous. Like, this is the kind of mistake that he should not be making in year two. You know, maybe yeah. as a rookie, fine, rookies make those kinds of mistakes. In year two, you can't make errors like that. You should know better by this point, and he doesn't seem to have. It, it looked like he did in preseason, and now he's gone back. Well, again, you know, I, I don't want to get away from the fact that I, I think we – as a society, um, <laughs> do have a bad tendency to think that players can't have bad games. And we we continue that to think that, okay, players can't have two bad games. Like, if you have two bad games, right. like, you're a bum. And, it's, and especially at the quarterback position, it just doesn't necessarily work like that. You know, even some of the best in the world have some bad games back-to-back. I feel like some of the very top, you know, the Patrick Holmes, certainly, like, when Tom Brady was going off, those guys, like, they kind of they kind of ruin it for everybody else. But the truth is that, like, you're allowed to have bad games. But that does not get away from what I said earlier, where these have to be the worst games of Kenny Pickett's season. Because if they want to be a playoff team, that's not playoff football. So even though what we've seen over the last two weeks, it happens like it's a reality. This game is really hard. It moves really fast. There's a lot of decisions that you have to make in split second time. And there are times when even some of the best ones just make boneheaded decisions. Can I? It's the consistency of the boneheaded decisions that really start to get you in trouble. And once you start getting past, like, okay, you've had a couple of games where you weren't your best, do those tendencies start to become who you are as a quarterback. And I think that's obviously what you don't want to have with Pickett. So it's just got to be no other way around it. It's got to be a lot better than what it was last night, especially uh, in a really, really tough AFC and maybe the toughest division in football. One of the, the fascinating things in this game was rookie offensive tackle Dewan Jones going up against TJ Watt as his first start. You know, he got a ton of playing time last week because Jack Conklin went down so early, but this was his first real start at right tackle and an absolute baptism of fire going up against one of the best defensive players in the entire NFL. I was really impressed by how he held up. I mean, sure, he there's some there's some losses in there, but when you consider the length of time, like the the overall body of work, 
I mean, we're going to charge him for four pressures. One of them is a mental mistake where he blocks down on TJ Watt rather than uh, fanning out and picking up the, the blitzer. To be honest, if you're going to err in that direction, that's not a, like, I would rather you made the mistake of blocking TJ Watt than, you know, something else. That's not the worst thing in the world. Another one was kind of losing it on a stun, and then two relatively clean losses against TJ Watt. But, I mean, that's a hell of a lot better than Colton McKivitz did last week for the 49ers. That's not a bad debut for Dewan Jones. Uh, and Dewan Jones, I don't, talent was never the issue with Dewan Jones. And, and people look at him and go, like, how in the world did he fall towards the fourth round? Draft process means a lot. And keeping up with the draft process means a lot. And we try to keep tabs on it as much as possible to let people know kind of what's going on and how it could change the draft and how it could change the outlook. I really do wonder if what happened at the Senior Bowl is the reason why he fell all the way to the fourth round, right? Yeah. He absolutely dominates day one of the Senior Bowl, but Senior Bowl practices are three days. Senior Bowl week is three three days of practice, and then you got a game a couple of days later. Dewan Jones dominated, was absolutely the best player on the field on day one. And then he didn't play the rest of the week. And he was like, nope, I'm done. I'm out of here. And I, I wonder if... NFL teams, coaches, whatever, looked at that and was like, damn, this is somebody who's not going to stay and compete for all three days. Because that's that's really all I've got. Like, unless he tanked a bunch of the interviews, which I, I didn't really hear any of that. Like, I, I just wonder if something like that weighed so much in the mind of these guys. And some people out there who listen to this might think, that is crazy that you would let that influence you. But if NFL teams and coaching staffs and scouting staffs don't think you're a competitor, they're not going to draft you. The, the, the NFL draft is too much of a crapshoot to take a player that you don't think is a competitor. Yeah. Even somebody who is as talented at Ohio State and as physically gifted as, as Dewan Jones is. So <laughs> I think Cleveland obviously got a steal in the fourth round with him. And and to me, that's that's about the only explanation I have that a guy like that could slip to the fourth round. Yeah, I think it was on our podcast the day of the draft. So that sort of first pre-draft show where Chris was saying that the the pro, the um Senior Bowl was definitely part of it. Apparently, his attitude at his pro day turned a lot of people off as well. There was sort mm -hmm. of three or four things it, that were all of a similar, you know, st similar feel in terms of sort of brushing it off the whole pre-draft process and, and kind of copying an attitude about the whole thing that turned a whole bunch of people off. And he was talking about it going into that draft. Um, now, look, this is the kind of thing that how much of it is real and how much of it is like people just right. decided that, right. right? But that seemed to be the way it was going heading into the draft, and it, it ended up resulting in him sliding all the way to that fourth round. But before all that stuff, I mean, I, I thought he was a first-round talent. Absolutely. I loved him at that kind of spot. Chris, you know, was talking about him being a potential left tackle in the NFL, like not a guy that needs to stay on the right side you could project him to the other side and he can be your elite blindside pass blocker but the fact that the the Browns gave him a ton of playing time as well in preseason I mean by contrast Dan Moore Jr. who's going into his third year now had a pass blocking grade of three and a half yesterday going up against Miles Garrett right so Miles Garrett TJ Watt two of the best defensive players two of the best pass rushers in the NFL Dan Moore right. has seen Miles Garrett a lot already in his NFL career and still got absolutely eviscerated by him. Dewan Jones is coming in his first NFL start and does a better job against TJ Watt than Dan Moore was able to do against Miles Garrett. 
Yeah, he's, he's he's seen Miles Garrett in his nightmares as well. So it's not just the meetings that they have on the field. I think that it's probably stuck with him in a negative way. No, I mean I think Dewan's playing well. I didn't, I I haven't watched that one-on-one matchup yet, but um, from what we've seen from Dewan earlier this year, and obviously the fact that he's going to get a lot of playing time moving forward, that's something that I'm going to dig into for sure. All right, so that's enough of uh, of our Monday Night Football conversation you're on here to talk a little bit about the draft or uh, draft eligible players and kind of give us a little bit of pre prep during the NFL regular season last week we talked about quarterbacks specifically who is potentially QB3 after Caleb Williams Drake May Uh, we ran through some names there this week we want to talk a bit about wide receivers Um, it's going to be I think a very good wide receiver draft class but it's also featuring a guy in Marvin Harrison Jr who is being talked about as, you know, one of these generational players, like best receiver since whoever you want to put in there. The the wide receiver version of Bijan Robinson. That's the kind of conversation that people are having about Marvin Harrison. So first off, let's start with with talking a little bit about Harrison and then run through some names of guys that might not be in his level, but would be the next up on the list and could potentially join him, you know, in the top 10 of a draft pick uh, of a draft next year. Harrison. He's a, he's basically just a creative player, man, a wide receiver. <laughs> I mean, he is who you build and Madden your career after, and you know, you're eight games into your rookie season and you have 1800 yards and you're about to shatter the NFL record. Now I'm not saying that he's about to do that, but like, that's the kind of talent that we're talking about with this guy, somebody who could truly win at every single level. I, he has the size, he has the speed, he has the concentration, he has the technique, he has the football background. Obviously you see the name Marvin Harrison Jr. Yes. It's, it's Marvin Harrison senior son, the one with Peyton Manning, who's a Hall of Famer. Like, he just has all of this going for him. He had an elite receiving grade last year. I know the receiving grade's a little bit lower to start this season. He was a little banged up in one of those games. That's going to skyrocket. It's going to be a lot higher at the end of the year. And he's just totally dominant. The thing about Harrison is, whether you want to look at the data or whether you want to look at the film or, or whatever, he checks every single box. And the film is phenomenal. The way that he gets off the line of scrimmage, You can tell that he's put a ton of work into his stance and his releases and what to do with his hands. He knows how to attack inside and outside leverage depending on what route he is running. He knows how to get defense backs turned around and really attack blind spots. He knows how to uh, disengage press coverage against even some of the best that the Big Ten has to offer. He can go up and get it above the rim because of his size and his length and his arm length. We saw last week that there was a play where the defenders were, were were off of him because they don't want to press him because he can obviously get behind him very, very quickly. And he split these defenders so quickly up the seam that it looked like they were it looked like these were two high school defenders that were trying to go up against him. The speed that he was able to display, getting up the seam, getting wide open, catching the ball, scoring a touchdown. So he's got just I I I we could talk an entire show about what this guy does well because he checks the box in every single category. He's number two right now on PFF on, on PFF's big board behind only Caleb Williams. And if you if you were making a big board based off of just All talent level yeah. relative to their position and what they're capable of, not taking positional importance into account, this guy's the number one player in the draft. I, I, it's just you, 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 you it's, it's so hard to think of how you would find a better college player going to the NFL that gives you more of a ceiling than what Marvin Harrison Jr. can give you. 
his size, his physical tools, I think, are what's really going to end up separating him. Because what I, what I, I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners uh, remember Marvin Harrison Sr., but, you know, Peyton Manning's favorite receiver for a bulk of his career. Marvin Harrison Sr. was a small receiver, right? He was six right. foot, 185 right. pounds, right? Marvin Harrison Jr. is Marvin Harrison Sr. adjusted for inflation. He's 6'3", 205 pounds, and apparently can run a 4'340". Like, this is, like, if you were, Marvin Harrison Sr. is a Hall of Fame caliber receiver, like one of the greatest to ever play. But if you, were, if you came away from anything and you'd be like, Man, what if he was just a bit taller, stronger, and faster? <laughs> like, well, that's that's what his son is. Like, now we're taking son. we're taking a guy with those bloodlines and presumably those like uh, lessons, you know, coaching instruction from his dad, like nuance, uh, helping along the way, tips and tricks. Except we're adding three inches in height, twenty pounds in weight, and he's probably faster than his dad was. Like, that's unfair. That's the perfect way to put it because i looked at the same exact thing i was like damn i wonder how this i wonder how he stacks up against this old man and he is he he i don't i don't i don't i don't want to say that he's uh that he's stronger than his old man because I'm, I'm sure that uh senior probably says he's still got the strength on him and that he you know he can still take him even to this day but bigger faster stronger version like he is he is the, the i love the way that you put that he is marvin harrison senior but adjusted for 2023's inflation that's what it feels like and that truly is what separates him as a prospect from everyone else in this incredibly talented class. And then, you know, we're naturally going to talk about Marvin Harrison Jr. versus some of the other great wide receivers of draft classes of the past. And I haven't sat down to really think about some of the other wide receivers that have kind of come through over the last 10 years. I'm sure I'll do that at some point uh, over at pff.com. But when you look at wide receivers and you're evaluating wide receivers, you're trying to find their strengths, right? Yeah. The very first thing in scouting that you want to know is where does this player win? Tell me how he wins. Does he win with length? Does he win with speed? Does he win with quickness? Does he win with size? Does he win with technique? Tell me the best part about where they win as a player. And then we will begin to evaluate, is it good enough to win at the NFL level? And how high the ceiling is slash how realistic it is that they could improve that from where it is currently. That's what scouting is all about. When you are scouting wide receivers, there's so many different ways that you can win. But there's just from physical limitations of, of the human body. Normally, and there's some guys that we're going to talk about here. If you're a big, strong, tall, contested catch guy, you're probably not going to separate super well. Chances are you're probably not going to be as quick because you have a bigger body. You are carrying more weight. The time it takes, the energy it takes for you to chop your feet and change direction is more taxing physically than it is for a player who is five foot eight, 180 pounds. They're just able to move better. They have less body to move. When you are a speed guy, you have to win with speed because there's a good chance that because you have less muscle on you, because you when you have less mass, you are not able to have contested catches, go above the rim. You physically cannot reach above whatever your wingspan is. So there's always a give and take. With Marvin Harrison, the reason why he is special is because there doesn't feel like there's a give and take. He wins with size. He wins with length. He wins with technique. He wins with speed. He wins with strength. There's just there, there, we, that's, That is how you go about scouting 
you find the strengths and then you find the weaknesses after that, the weaknesses category for Marvin Harrison Jr., very, very small. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get onto because I agree with you. Like, my notes just read like a list of strengths, you know, better after the catch than I expected him to be going in effortlessly sheds contact at the line of scrimmage, just immediately clears defensive backs, obvious understanding of leverage, how to get open, all that kind of stuff, tracks the ball in the air really well, great hands, all this kind of stuff. And I do think that for him in particular, the fact that he's he's big and fast is huge because um, – you know, he's, he can win with just being physically more dominant than other people as well, which not every top receiver prospect can, right? For Devontae Smith in particular, right? This was a guy who had an incredibly good package, except we were talking about someone that's 180 pounds and marginal size and, and isn't the most blazing fast guy in the world and wasn't going to win with just overwhelming people physically. So I wanted to ask, do you have any negatives for Marvin Harrison? Because I I do, and I don't see a lot of people that do. The, honestly... It's hard to it's 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 hard to find a ton of negatives with him, especially given expectation of his strength. The one thing that I wrote down going into the season is I do want to see more yards after the catch from him. When you look at what he had last season, he had over twelve hundred yards receiving, but only about three hundred of those came after the catch. So he was very much like a sideline guy. And CJ Throughout CJ Stroud was throwing him a lot of NFL type passes, like comebacks, back shoulders, you know, things that were fading to the sideline where he was able to tiptoe it and get out of bounds really quick. There weren't a ton of routes for him that were, you know, quick slants or backside digs, you know, things that were really get meant to generate a lot of yards after the catch. But that was really the big area that I just wanted to see from him. But even with I would say a little lack of production in there from him. It's something he can do, right? We saw it this past week. I mean, if you give him space and you get him the ball, he's going to reach over 20 miles an hour running, and he's going to be able to split the defense and play play well. So if you, you can manufacture space for him, I think that he could give you that. But honestly, the yards after catch thing was basically the only part of his profile that I thought wasn't to an elite level already. What'd you have? The one thing that I noticed, and I noticed it both times, I kind of watched him in the off season just because everybody was already talking about him. And then when, when we were prepping for this, I watched strictly 2023 tapes, so just those few games that he's already played. And it, it, it leapt out both times. I, I don't love his turning circle on kind of speed cuts in particular. I feel, I don't know if it's because of his size or just because he struggles with that generally, but... I feel like he can't snap off those quick cuts on on those sort of speed moves. I also felt last year that he struggled with it a bit, just throttling down, just stopping, like coming Mm -hmm. to a dead stop quickly at that size, I thought was a struggle. Now, that I think has actually improved this year. I haven't, I think he's fixed the stopping part of it, but I still see those, any kind of speed cut just looks a little bit slower and more labored than I think it it does for, you know, elite level wide receivers. And it might just be because he's six three and it's harder to do that when you're that tall than it is for these guys that are, you know, six foot and more compact. But right. I think that is a weakness of his game that feels like it shouldn't be there for for somebody related to Marvin Harrison Senior. Like that was that dude's strength. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I do hear what you're saying. But again, I, I think that going back to the way that I kind of set this up there is there is a little bit of human body context that you just have to take into account with yeah. players like this and i think that he moves 
plenty well, has plenty of flexibility, and is fluid enough for a player who is six foot four. And so when I when I I don't have that note in my scouting report for him. I'll keep it in mind certainly as I watch him moving forward to see if it's something that really stands out to me. But I think I didn't have it just because. Yeah, you, you you can't expect a guy who is six foot four to turn on a dime the way that a player who is six feet or five eleven right. or even like six foot one does. But it's, it's just, also it, why it, human body's not going to work out like that. Yeah, it's also why I think if he can run a four three, you know, and he is that big and tall, like that, that's now important because he might not have the kind of immediate, quick lateral movement, um, or at least speed cutting movement. Not so much lateral movement because he does a lot of that in you know, footwork and short area stuff in a phone booth. But if mm-hmm. he doesn't have that, it's now important that he has the speed and the size and the range because there's that push and pull that you talked about, the give and take that needs to happen there. Um, but, yeah, like, I, he's an elite prospect. He's extremely good at a bunch of stuff that's very difficult for receivers to have. And he's got the size and speed profile. And there's very little to dislike about his tape. So he's the clear number one guy. You brought up three names of guys we should talk about as the potential number two or players that could move in his direction, maybe not get to the same level. Keon Coleman from Florida State, uh, Malik Neighbors, is that mm-hmm. how we're saying that, from LSU? Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to give you this one because I've not even I've never attempted this name, so I'm not going to try now. Marvin Harris's teammate, Emeka Egbuka, there we go. Is, is, is the third guy. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with Keon Coleman. Um, I threw on his tape and really liked him I bet bet you did (laughs) really liked him he so Mike Renner the the late Mike Renner um yeah of course the late Michael uh was really high on Quentin Johnson last year and I didn't really see it and I didn't see it from start to finish like when I first started watching these receivers I started with Quentin Johnson because he was Renner's number one receiver and about 10 minutes into his tape I texted Renner I was like are you sure Quentin Johnson doesn't stink? You know? Are you sure? And he was like, yeah, yeah, and then telling me about how good he was. But the way Renner described Quentin Johnson was how Keon Coleman plays. Oh, well, that's how we that we wanted Quentin Johnson to be stronger as a, what did he end up being, like six foot four, 250? Like, he, I think, actually, I'm looking this up. Right. <laughs> Does he have the exact same measurements? That's what I'm saying. Because this would actually be a no. Okay, so Quentin's a little bit shorter. Quentin, I, I wonder if Keon's going to be like closer to six three. And right. I guess Quentin was six two and three four, so he was close to six. Same three. listed. So they're they're probably, probably the same list, right? Would you say they're probably the same listed size? Yeah, Keon's listed size, I think, is six foot four, two hundred fifteen pounds. Right. What did TCU have? That's what I'm just Quentin checking Johnson now. Has. We're gonna go to the TCU page to find Quentin Johnson, find out what. Yeah, we'll see how schools lied about their players right. this time. He was yeah, six four, two fifteen, exact same listed. Okay, size. so then he he showed up six foot two and three fourths. Yep, and two hundred and eight pounds at the combine. So I think eh, that might be. I think Coleman's gonna be a little bit bigger in both categories. Like I think Coleman's gonna be above. Uh, probably cl- closer to two ten, but this is probably pretty close. No, this is a gr- this is a good shout out because Coleman definitely plays stronger, yeah. much much stronger yes. than what you would want from Quentin Johnston. And 
that is the big area where he wins. I mean, I'm sure you watched the LSU game as one of your games this year, mm-hmm. and he looked like an absolute monster. They couldn't cover him. It didn't matter what route he was running. It didn't matter where he was getting the ball. He was going up and getting it above the rim, and that is what he does best. There's no question about it. Now, he's also a really damn good overall athlete at six foot three, 210 pounds, whatever he's going to show up at, because He's got that yards after catch ability if you give him some space like we saw in that first touchdown run from him. And if you go back to last year, you watch that Michigan game. If the only two games that you watch from Keon Coleman are the LSU game from this year and the Michigan game from last year, you would tell yourself that this guy might as well just not play in the league and just go to the Hall of Fame right now. <laughs> But but there's obviously other games where he's not as dominant. But this is the type of player in the skill set, especially when it comes to going up and getting the ball over defenders that you draft in the first round. So this he he is such a great athlete. I wanted to shout this out too. He had scholarships to play both football and basketball, and was originally at Michigan State before he was at Florida State, and actually played for Tom Izzo on the men's basketball team at Michigan State while he also played football his freshman and sophomore seasons. I mean, to me, that is extremely impressive. Michigan State's basketball program is not some like, ah, you know, maybe we'll be good this year. This is like a blue blood program in college basketball. And they let this dude play on their team. Like he, because he is that athletic and he is that good. So yeah, I think that just goes to enhancing the basketball background conversation that a lot of people have with wide receivers. He wasn't just, oh, yeah, he played, you know, small forward in high school. No, he played for Tom Izzo while also playing on the Michigan State football team. So incredible overall athlete, big above the rim. Um, he's some guy that they, I, I know a lot of people are going to gravitate towards because of how dominant he is at the catch point. He and also like that obviously leaps out, but he moved way more sharply and nimbly than I would have expected for a guy of that size. Like I almost yes. had the exact opposite feeling of he he just that jumped out like I was not expecting him to have those kind of movement skills mm-hmm. at that size now this is where it gets tricky right he's listed at 6'4 215 if he comes in at 6'2 205 it's like well okay that that makes more sense that a guy of that that's size kind of move. how he looks yeah isn't it so isn't that it? like, like that, when he's on film you say to yourself, okay, this guy's six foot two, 205 pounds. Right. And that's but where if that. He's actually 6'4, 215, that's different. Yeah. And that's where that kind of stuff becomes difficult, right? Because you're sort of taking the word for college teams of how big this guy actually is. And then he comes in a completely different size. And that changes the relative, how impressed you are with his movement skills because you've completely changed the body type that he supposedly has. And that completely transforms your expectations. So if he is anywhere near 6'4", 215, he moves incredibly sharply and dynamically for a guy of that size. If, however, he's only, you know, 6'2", 205, he still moves impressively, but it makes more sense. Like, guys of that size can move more like that. Um, if he if he is... Hold on, I'm, I'm looking this up on the fly. If he is six foot four, he's in the ninety-first percentile of wide receivers. Right. If he is six foot two, he is in the sixty-seventh percentile for wide receivers. So that's very different. Yeah. In weight, if he's two oh five, that is fifty-ninth percentile versus two fifteen, which would be eighty-first. So that's a decent jump in both of those categories. Yeah. And 
if you are an above the rim type of player, a contested catch receiver, which Keon Coleman absolutely is, that's his bread and butter. You want as much size and weight on him as possible because he moves super well. So the more you get to tell yourself, this guy's moving incredibly well for a six foot four, 215 pound athlete, that's going to be more advantageous than having to say, like, okay, he's a contested catch six foot two, 205 pound player, which is still fine. It's just a little bit different of a conversation. Yeah, let's move on to Malik Neighbors from LSU. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a much smaller receiver uh, listed at six foot two hundred. Um, what was your what's your impression of him? I think he's unbelievably natural, man, and it's he he is somebody who I think can win in so many different ways because of his body control, especially when it comes to his speed. He can speed up and throttle down, to me, incredibly well. I think he's also one of the most natural hands catchers in the entire draft. And I think that the high um, catchable pass percentage that we saw from last year kind of goes into that. I was surprised at one of the metrics that we have at PFF that um, carries a decent amount of weight when it comes to translating guys from the college level to the pro level at receiver is you're great against single coverage. And I really thought that Malik neighbors would be better at that category and also the separation category. They weren't as high of scores as I feel like his ability lends itself to say that he can do. Um, I think we saw that this past week when he had a 200 yard performance against Michigan against Mississippi state. It's just the way that he is able to cut and speed up how smooth he is changing speeds changing gears and then how natural he is um when the ball is coming at him and he's extended his hands and those are to me really impressive things not only from him as an athlete but also hand-eye coordination with him being a receiver that's interesting because i i at least i hadn't looked up those numbers but it tallies with what i've written down in my notes or at least i think there's an explanation in there i agree with you i think his movement skills are sick like he's an incredibly yes. sudden mover his acceleration is stupid like he's got yes. absurd acceleration and throttles down quickly like every movement dynamic you want is there 100%. I think he does a lot of small, nuancey wide receiver things very well. He works back to the ball really well, which sounds like that's a fundamental basic of the game. But he also does it like even at the last second, like that last step of just moving back towards, which can make a big difference, not just for the quarterback, but like for your own ability to catch the ball. You take a half step forward at the catch point, you've just generated a little bit of separation from the defender that's all over you if you're both kind of waiting there jostling for the ball so he does stuff like that really really well but I feel like he's quite raw in terms of route running and understanding certain elements of um, playing receiver like that part is really good and seems second nature to him just instinctive Um, but like he lets defenders into his pads all the time and like to a problematic degree. And I've written down, so lets defenders into his pads way too often, should be roasting these fools, but isn't because they always get their hands <laughs> right, on him. Right. And he does that's, this weird that, thing. That, that's why you watch his tape and then you go to, again, the wins versus single coverage and the separation yeah. scores that we have. And you go, why are these as low as they are? And it lends itself to kind of what you're saying. And there's he is... It's 
you are correct like there are nuanced things about the position that he does well but it's he does not have mastery of the position yeah. in its entirety and like, there are definitely things that he is working on but the movement skills of what this guy's able to do and again how yeah. natural of a pass catcher he is that stuff you can't teach like right. that stuff he's gonna have over basically every receiver in this class i've got him as wide receiver too right now just because the movement skills alone and who you need to be as an athlete to win at the NFL level, to me, he does better than everybody that's not Marvin Harrison Jr. No, the tools are there. Like I, Again, written down in my notes, like he's got – there's something special there if you can get him coached up on the stuff that he's not good at, which is, I think, the better way of approaching it. But I think that explains some of why he's not as productive as he should be. He's got this weird tendency to try and just sort of shrug off contact instead of using his hands to actually – clear it get rid of the contact like the difference between him and marvin harrison jr in that aspect harrison clears the contact with his hands gets rid of the the defender sure. and he's immediately yeah. gone neighbors tries to like shrug off the contact or avoid it and doesn't most of the time when he doesn't that guy's now stuck on him he also he like he takes the wrong release sometimes so there was i forget who which the game was but there was like a corner route in the end zone and he took an inside release and tried to run all the way around the guy. You can do that, but you need to shift him at the top of the stem. Otherwise, mm -hmm. he's got position on you. And he, he wasn't able to do that. He didn't even really try and do it. Those are the kinds of things where like, that just feels raw from a receiver prospect. It's not a terminal problem, but it's something that he needs to get coached up on and work on. And if you can get that fixed... Like those movement skills and, and his ability, I think, are sick. So I'm excited to see what he can do because I think if you can get those things coached up, there's something genuinely special there. Yep, I agree completely. All right. Um, our last guy. What was it? Amika Emeka Egbuka. Emeka Egbuka. All right. Um, talk to me about him. So, you know, it's cliche to say, oh, if he was on any other team that didn't have Marvin Harrison, he'd be <laughs> one of the best receivers in the country. But, like, he would be. I mean, he still is at Ohio State. He, he's somebody who – he's not as big, tall, fast as Marvin Harrison, but um, he's very nuanced. I mean, he understands the position very, very well. I, I think you saw that very well last year, especially when C.J. Stroud was uh, really able to give him the ball – with momentum and in space he, he could be a big yards after the catch kind of a guy i love his build i love his balance i love how he's able to take contact you know it's he he, he doesn't play a ton in the slot but i think the slot is going to be where he succeeds at the next level because he feels like he knows how to attack defenders with different leverage he, it feels like he knows how to subtly create that separation to open up that throwing window and he knows what to do after the ball too so those are all aspects of playing the position that i think can make you a really great threat as a slot receiver and when i say slot of course i'm not saying like oh yeah this is a wide receiver three he can't play on the outside no most of his experience is on the outside but i think he could have a ton of success if you give him those two-way goes and you give him his space so really well-rounded athlete and he's got great hands as well i think he just understands how to win at the position and so this is another really talented player i sometimes i watch him and i wait for that like okay where's the trump card in his game mm. and i wonder if we're going to get to a point in this receiver class because there are a handful of players who are Nipping at the heels in this top in the top five, top seven, top eight. I mean, I've got, I think, eight or nine receivers in my top 50 right now. So there's a lot of really talented receivers in this class. Are one of those guys who might be a little bit further down on the list than Ibuka is, 
going to have a trump card that goes, okay, I can see that being more dominant at the NFL level, whereas Ibuka is just so well-rounded in everything that he does. So I wonder if the league is going to look at Ibuka and say, yeah, not a wide receiver one, but a really high-end wide receiver two. And I do wonder kind of like what happens with his draft stock at that point. But overall, this is somebody who I think can be very, very productive at the pros. Yeah, that's interesting because I I didn't really see it really with him. Um, Not that I disliked him, but same kind of sentiment. Like I just didn't see the same kind of trump cards that you got from Neighbors or Coleman or obviously Marvin Harrison Jr. And it's like everything slightly underwhelmed me. Now, look, I also only watched – 2023 right so a pretty small sample size oh yeah you got to watch 2022 right. for him so yeah. 2020 might... so i will tell you 2023 is not nearly as good for igbuka yet because of kyle mccord and the offense is still figuring things out right. they really are when that offense was humming and the rhythm and ball placement with cj stroud last year was able to take advantage of what igbuka does well you see a lot of production. You see a lot of force missed tackles. You see a lot of really great yards after catch ability. So, but yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but there is context because 2023, I watched 2023 as well. It's not nearly as good as that 2022 was. And I yeah. Think so, like, I'm fully expecting to kind of to circle back to either a, a much more expansive version of his tape in 2023 once the season's all done or simply go back a year and, and find some better performance from him. But, you know, based off just the, the dipping my toe into the water of his tape this year, everything sort of felt slightly, you know, underwhelming or not quite as advertised. Even, like, I didn't even really see speed. He's he's, a, he's another 4-3 guy, apparently. I didn't really see that from his tape. Like, I was surprised to learn that he's supposedly that fast. So I, I'm going to be interested to see him a second time having kind of not seen it the first at the first glance. Two more names that I would throw out to you and the good people. Um, like if you watch Ibuka and, and like me, you're like, hmm, really good player, but not exactly has a trump card. If you're looking for two guys that might have a trump card that you like over him, Romo Dunze from Washington, just incredibly productive, big body dude, really nice athlete. And he is really showing off the catch radius this year. The contested catch numbers are up. He's stronger at the catch point, which is something I really wanted to see from him. Those all look up this year. So he plays at Washington. He's on the receiving end of a lot of really great Michael Penix Jr. passes. And then the other one, is Xavier Worthy. If Xavier Worthy had more reliable hands, and I know there's a big conversation about drops mattering and how much it matters, but if Xavier Worthy had more reliable hands, go watch his film. You'd go, okay, this is going to be the fastest receiver in the draft. This is absolutely somebody who's going to get probably drafted in the first round. And I think that that's true because of how fast this dude is. But there are moments where even just like simple catches, I'm like, Come on, just bring it in. You got to receive the pass. You were a wide receiver. So if we get a lot more consistently when it comes to him catching the football, he is somebody who has that athletic trump card that I could absolutely see jumping into that top four, top five, whatever it is. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. Um, That's our little look at the wide receivers in the 2024 upcoming draft. If you guys want us to hit any other position group, you know, Travis here all season, we're going to be doing this every week. NFL podcast at pff.com. Let us know what you would like us to take a look at as our first look as we go through the season. Uh, Hopefully you guys have enjoyed the show. We'll be back tomorrow, myself and Steve, and then a couple more shows later in the week. Thanks for listening. 